0: Produced in association with KPMG Australia, this is What Happens Next with Bernard Salt.
1: Hello, I'm Bernard Salt. On this edition of the program, we look at how governments and teachers are committing to education innovation in the wake of the coronavirus. We wanna make sure that this pandemic does not take away education opportunities from the Australian people.
2: Teachers are very, very committed to making sure that they can do the best for the students and the communities that they serve.
1: And we check out how the pandemic could affect the UK's higher education sector.
3: I think universities are going to absolutely do their very best to give students the kind of experience that they dreamed of when they were filling in their university applications. But with social distancing, with public health concerns, it may be that you can come in to campus for a socially distanced seminar, but you probably couldn't meet your friends in the coffee shop afterwards and talk about it.
1: That's all coming up on the programme when we discover what happens next. Well, as the world continues to come to terms with the lasting effects of the outbreak of COVID-19, here in Australia one thing has become apparent with regard to reigniting the economy. And that's the importance of providing the chance for people to retrain or upskill so they're equipped to find work in those sectors that have employment opportunities. So on skills, we need Australians better trained for the jobs businesses are looking to create. It's that simple. Aside from retraining those who are already in the workforce, there's also been focus on how high school students and their teachers are coping during the pandemic. To look more closely at this, I spoke to yesterday, Selva-Kamaran.
2: I'm a high school humanities teacher and leader of professional practice at Rudy Hill High School, currently serving as the Department of Education Teacher Ambassador.
1: I started by asking her how high school education has changed in response to the coronavirus.
2: Well, I think the virtual classroom has been here in many ways already. But what COVID-19 has taught us is the importance of face-to-face connection and relationships are a core part of still having that virtual classroom. So as a teacher really looking at blended ways of working online and face-to-face has, has been really key here. What the online experience and switching to remote so quickly actually highlighted was was some students were doing much better, you know, in terms of that online format, Uh, sometimes we saw our more, um, introverted or quieter students really thrive in an online setting in group forums, like online chats, but you know, other students not preferring that way of learning.
1: How has technology shrunk the globe and given students easier access to overseas learning?
2: I think this has been one of the most exciting things um, in the time that I've been a teacher. So I'm coming up to about 10 years as a teacher. And the technology has been able to give students access to experts around the world, academic research in a secondary context. One of our key roles is, especially as a humanities teacher, is to teach students how to break down that content and to seek and access credible sources in their writing and in their work. Um, There's global collaboration happening between educators as well. That means that we can have virtual excursions, virtual site studies, uh, just in terms of what technology lets us do.
1: What approach do you take towards developing soft skills in your students? This is not necessarily English language or physics or maths or whatever, but it's the skills of resilience, of being unfazed by change, being able to overcome a problem and find a solution.
2: Absolutely. I've just been really, really thrilled actually that a piece I wrote for the Department of Education on cultivating critical and creative thinking has been published and it represents uh, not only my work in the classroom, but The work of Rudy Hill High School, who have been recognised as a leader nationally and also internationally for their work in promoting the capabilities. Our school's been fortunate to work with Dr. Bill Lucas from the University of Winchester in the United Kingdom. And one of the traits of creativity is tolerating uncertainty. And if we think of everything that has been happening this year in terms of, you know, from bushfires to pandemic um, and now looking at, you know, the the news and students being able to break down what is biased information, different perspectives as they're they're watching the news is being able to link it to these core capabilities.
1: We've spoken about technology with regard to education in the wake of COVID-19. What other opportunities for education have come to light because of the pandemic?
2: I think um, with COVID-19 and just in general, I think sometimes what people outside of education don't see is the collaboration that happens in teaching teachers are very, very committed to making sure that they can do the best for the students and the communities that they serve. So in terms of what's happened even with COVID-19 is that there has been so much professional learning that teachers are organising by teachers to be able to connect, to network, to share what we're doing.
1: As an educator, what programs have you had to consider in relation to student wellbeing?
2: I think the biggest thing has been to remember that we especially in the middle of it where we're very much learning in a crisis and to be aware of what our families might be going through, um, what the students might be going through. You know, we very conscious that some families have lost jobs and there was a lot of uncertainty at home, and to be able to respond appropriately in that context. So, at our school, it was a very collaborative approach to making sure that the communication to check in on students was streamlined. So, you know, we didn't want to have like seven or eight teachers of all the different subjects calling home for that one student and adding further stress at this time. So, there was an approach to how we were going to do that communication and making sure that it was streamlined.
1: What are the steps you've taken to reconnect students with classroom learning and the culture of the school? And was it challenging?
2: Uh, It absolutely has been challenging. Uh, The steps that we've taken has been to stagger back our timetable. We actually moved to shorter periods slightly to give students um, more breaks between screen time. Um, when we were remote learning and of course at the moment we're following steps to have staggered finishes at the end and just being able to communicate to students you know that they're sort of easing back into um, the full length of the period, even at the moment, it's still five minutes shorter and they've got more break time. So, giving them that extra time as well, just to reconnect with their friends in their playgrounds, uh, having those conversations one on one as well. And it's allowed teachers to have the, the individual catch ups during breaks as well to check in on well being. For me personally, at the moment, it's my senior students catching up on like assessments and just needing to be like, hey, miss, I've got this great idea. What do you think? or I'm just really don't know how to approach this and I'm stuck you know how do I get over it and face to face just finding that that's what students really really miss with that opportunity to just come and ask you a question but it's very much just been helping students reconnect I had one student say to me I just got so used to working at home it's hard to come back to so much noise in the school That's so just like one example of just helping students trying to to fade that back and just remembering too. It's only been a few weeks since all of this transition and at the end of the day, checking in with each student individually as much as possible to see what they want. Even calling parents, I was doing that at the end of last week, just to to check in on some students and seeing how they were going as well.
1: Yesterday, thank you very much for joining the program. There's no doubt that tertiary education is another area that's been disrupted by COVID-19. There are some experts who say this is an opportunity for universities to pivot, to do things differently and step forward into the future. For some analysis into the future of the tertiary education sector, I spoke to Stephen Parker, KPMG Australia's education sector leader, and Debbie McVitie, former Chief of Staff at Universities UK and editor of UK education policy platform, Wonky. Federal Education Minister Dan Tehan announced that fees for short courses would be lowered so that people can re-skill during this time. Today, we're announcing that we're slashing the prices of degrees and diplomas in short courses to enable people rather than binging on Netflix to be able to binge on studying. Stephen, I might start with you. Will that approach work?
4: I think they will be attractive in terms of cost and they'll allow people to put their toe in the water for a certificate rather than taking the plunge for a whole degree. And that seems more realistic in these uncertain times. There's good evidence of uh, anecdotal evidence of of uptake. So I think this seems a sensible measure to me.
1: Debbie, from your perspective in the UK, will the post-COVID environment result in universities struggling with debt-averse students and lower funding from governments?
3: So on the government funding side, of course, in our system, the funding follows the student. There's really very little that the government does in terms of funding for teaching. It all comes through student fees and students access the loan and then, and then repay that um, based on their income once they graduate. So the effect of that is that government has actually very few levers to influence the flow of money in the system. Um, it's all really in the hands of students. So everyone's watching nervously to see what students do. And, and we won't really know until September. There's absolutely been concern about potential fee cuts. There was an influential independent report last year that said fees were too high in the UK. This idea where the funding follows student choice was basically creating a situation where too many courses in area were, were proliferating in areas that were seen as low value if less necessary to the economy. So, you know, it's not inconceivable that we could see reductions in government funding. And certainly the government has said that they're not going to make up any funding shortfall if students don't, don't show up in September. That's their current position. So we could actually see quite a few institutions getting into trouble if those students don't show up.
1: Are you suggesting that campus life as we know it, or as I remember it, is going to disappear from the landscape in the UK and possibly in Australia as well?
3: I think universities are going to absolutely do their very best to give students the kind of experience that they dreamed of when they were filling in their university applications. But with social distancing, with public health concerns, it may be that you can come in to campus for a socially distanced seminar, but you probably couldn't meet your friends in the coffee shop afterwards and talk about it. You probably couldn't go along to the student Union. If you want to access broader student services, financial advice, you know, support for your mental health, you probably have to do that online.
1: Australia's federal government is also encouraging universities to pivot to micro-credentials in an effort to become world leaders. Will this work?
4: We want our universities to seize this opportunity, to become world leaders in short courses. And if our people can seize this opportunity,
1: if our universities can seize this opportunity, we'll be able to ensure that education remains one of the foundations which will build this nation into the future.
4: I think what the government is really saying is that universities need to be more tuned in to the needs of the workforce and be more agile in changing as the economy changes. And I think they're doing it through the language of micro-credentials, because these are on everyone's lips. And, you know, it's intuitively appealing that bite-sized learning will fit into people's busy lives. I think some universities will be successful at micro-credentials, but I'm very sceptical at a general level that they could become world leaders in them. The culture and the operating rhythm of our higher education system, they're very hard to budge I can't see world-class researchers suddenly revamping their bachelor degree courses into modular vocational offerings. Um, And I actually think there's a case for a new or revived form of practical higher education, such as Australia had with its colleges of advanced education and the UK had with its its polytechnics. And they could have this kind of thing as their core mission.
1: Debbie, what about from the UK perspective?
3: Um, I mean, on on the face of it, it looks like a really smart idea. It's something that a number of voices in the UK have suggested to government that they should be looking at with some version of this. Um, Because obviously having people unemployed with all the long-term consequences of that But it really does stand or fall by whether employers recognize these kind of credentials and and sort of see them as legitimate and valid. And I think there's a question here about audience as well. So in the UK, we talk a lot about what we call level four and five. So basically kind of sub-degree qualifications. And that's where it is perceived in government that that's where the gaps are. So we're talking about one year and two year courses, more perhaps focused on the technical and vocational side rather than kind of six month short courses. But if my Instagram feed is anything to go by, the universities with the big reputations are getting into this in a major way. So um, I'm constantly being pitched eight week courses to develop my leadership skills or, you know, build my confidence.
1: Again, I might ask both of you this question. The coronavirus has, of course, massively impacted international student numbers. Do you think there will be a bounce back in demand, both in Australia and the UK? Debbie, what do you think?
3: Um, I think there will, but it'll take a long time.
1: find a long time. <laughs>
3: uh, well, okay, five years. And that's me with my futurologist hat on. Of course, we don't know exactly how long it'll take. What I think is really important here, actually, is because uh, UK is an enormous provider of transnational education. So delivery of UK-validated, high-quality degrees in people's countries of origin or at partner campuses abroad. And, of course, online education as well. There's, there's such an opportunity here to rethink the way we internationalise higher education and to open up... Access to people who wouldn't, you know, who would otherwise be unable to travel.
1: Stephen, does that mean there is an opportunity for higher education in Australia in terms of international students in the next five years?
3: There definitely
4: is, and I broadly agree with with Debbie. I wouldn't describe what's going to happen next as a bounce. Um, And there's all this talk about different shaped letters, V shapes, and so on. I'm not sure there's any letter in the alphabet that's going to describe what we're about to see. It's probably going to be more like an ampersand. Um, with a squiggly line all over the place. I'm coining the idea of an ampersand recovery. (laughs) I love it. But, you know, the underlying drivers are still there. The things that have been driving international higher education for many years are growing GDP in developing countries, expanding middle classes, young populations, and they're still there. And provided the lockdown doesn't go on for an extraordinary period of time, I do think it'll come back.
1: Debbie, at least two prestigious universities in the UK, Cambridge and Bristol, have said that they won't go back to live lectures in the next academic year. Does this signal the death of the lecture in tertiary education?
3: Uh, I could be facetious and say oh well, I jolly well hope so <laughs> but actually uh, we as, as it happens it's a really timely question we've got a piece on uh, wonky.com just this morning by the pro vice Chancellor for education at Bristol Tansy Jessup her point is when the media reports that lectures are going online it, the implication is is that all teaching is going online and of course a lecture is only one small part of the teaching landscape but her wider point is of course that you know herding students into rooms where they sit facing forwards and someone speaks at them is, is a really kind of low value way to use use the time that students are on campus and how much better to use that time for debate for conversation for kind of practical hands-on experience and and this is kind of how Bristol is using this opportunity to think about it that said is the lecture dead absolutely not because students really actually value lectures and what they value is having them recorded so that they can wind them back they can go over material that they missed you know they've got all of that kind of curated material in one place that, that, that they could they can engage with it kind of in their own time and that is a really positive thing do they need to be exactly 55 minutes long probably not you know but there'll always be a space for expert people curating content and delivering in an engaging way.
1: Stephen, we've had a golden age for tertiary education. Do we need one for vocational training?
4: So there's a case for a golden age for vocational training. Whether we're actually going to get one, I'm not so sure. The focus is definitely shifting in that direction in Australia. And as you all know, Bernard, the Prime Minister's been talking about packages to boost skills training and so on. So there's some political tailwind behind it. Whether it's going to be a golden age for vocational training, I'm not so sure. The policy settings that we've had in the past around contestability and marketization have not really worked. We may actually be uh, looking at a future where the golden age of universities is passed, but it's not replaced by a golden age of vocational training. I think the world is taking a practical turn. All this thinking about the fourth industrial revolution, what's going to be needed in the future, a mix of practical and soft skills and critical thinking. You know, the, the settings are all there for a different kind of tertiary education. Whether providers are there to deliver it, I think that that's the real challenge. And the countries in the world that get this right, they, they blend academic knowledge, critical thinking, practical skills together. Those countries that get this right are I think are the ones that will move ahead um, in Industry 4.0.
1: Debbie, on that issue of soft skills that Stephen just raised, do you see that as a trend, as an issue in UK universities to kids over there, students over there learn and develop soft skills to take them through life?
3: Um, Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. I mean, what's been interesting, I think, is when you trace in the policy debate over kind of 20 years and more, is about how these soft skills are characterised. So sometimes, maybe sort of 10 years ago, people would talk about things like project management skills and communication skills, and it was still quite sort of technical in that that regard. These days, people are talking a lot more about skills around self-efficacy, around resilience, emotional skills, the ability to kind of uh, live in a complex world and not be overwhelmed by it. And one of the things that I think is very interesting is whether these things are, uh, I guess, latent in higher education curricula or whether they need to be added. You could say the same for things like skills for sustainability, skills for intercultural competence, skills for being a global citizen. These are all, I think, really important and and in some ways kind of have more longevity than the kind of specifics of the the content of courses. But I think we sometimes underestimate how much these skills are already there um, in academic curricula need to be brought out rather than kind of needing to be bolted on and kind of hung off the curriculum like a Christmas tree.
1: Well, there's certainly no doubt we need soft skills, we need technical skills, We need agility in addition to the intellectual skills that come with university. All of that will unfold in the future, no doubt. And on that note, Debbie and Stephen, thanks for helping us discover What Happens Next.
0: Hi, I'm Whitney Fitzsimmons, the executive producer of What Happens Next, it's that time in the program where we turn the tables and I get to interview our host and resident demographer, Bernard Salt. Bernard, it's interesting that although technology has been used for a while in teaching, the onset of COVID-19 has really accelerated the demand and need for it. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I do think that the use of technology has skyrocketed across the board, not just in schools and uh, universities and places where you'd kind of expect it, I suppose, but especially in business and in the broader community. We're all used to or become familiar with the use of programs like Zoom, for example. This is technology that has surely uh, accelerated its use uh, over the last three months or so. But it's not so much just the technology, but it's Becoming used to learning and adapting to and not being phased by the learning of new technology. that That is what I think we're taking out of this.
0: The other aspect to technology is that it can bridge the tyranny of distance. Yesterday mentioned that her students have been able to have access to educators overseas for special projects because of technology. It's pretty amazing, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. And in fact, it's almost a paradox in the sense that it's taken a a global pandemic where we're all closed down and we all retreat to their homes. And you could say, well, that's making us more insular, more isolated. And in one respect, that is the case. But through the use of technology, it's actually made us far more global. In fact, I have been contacted by students working on projects, uh, and even in the production of this uh, of this podcast series, we have interviewed a futurist from Vienna. Uh, which that opportunity and that thinking, that that globalness in our perspective, would not as easily come to the fore had we not been put in that situation.
0: Well, that's right, Bernard. I mean, we've had that opportunity during the podcast to speak to thought leaders across the world and get their expertise and insights into the subjects that we've been covering. I mean, on this episode, we spoke to Debbie McVitie. Previously, as you mentioned, we spoke to Matthias Hawkes. It's, it's been quite an interesting exercise. And Debbie, in fact, had a really interesting point. She said that she kind of hoped the live lecture would be no longer. What, what do you think about that, Bernard?
1: I'd be very disappointed if we lost an element of university life the campus for example it's in mo- the modern world it's very easy to curate your friendship group you can live in a bubble of just people who agree with you when you have to go to a campus and mix with broader people you're put in a an, in a more real life situation so so to retreat to a home and to just view specific lectures and to not be exposed to the breadth of ideas and thinking and personalities, some maddening, some wonderful, uh, that is that is a microcosm of life. And to be, to be removed from that entirely and to then at the end of your degree be thrust into real life, I think might be an issue.
0: But you did ask, Debbie, if university life will cease to exist as we had known it in the past so what do you think the new reality could possibly look like for university campuses and students in tertiary education
1: well the new reality i think is already here it's just been hastened by covid-19 that for many years the the number of times that university students actually need to be on campus has diminished significantly i think i'm i'm quite concerned about that i think that you actually learn outside the classroom, outside the lecture theatre. But I think we've been moving in that direction for some time and I get it that for many people this works, they're busy, they're working remotely, this is the only way they can manage it. But in some ways I think it it, would be ideal to have the best of both worlds, to be able to communicate through technology and to make that fit in with your work and your lifestyle and your aspirations but also I think there is something to be had by mixing with people that you do not choose in life, because that is real life when you think about it.
0: All right, well, that's all for the program. But before we go, check out the show notes where you can find those stories Yasday and Debbie mentioned during their interviews. Thank you, Bernard.
1: Thank you, Whitney. And thank you for listening to What Happens
0: Next. been listening to What Happens Next with Bernard Salt, produced in association with KPMG Australia. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.